All right, good Monday morning, everyone. We are glad you are with us. Some good news this morning. A yeah. deal. One deal. One deal. One of the many deals that needs to be There's made. There's like 15 <laughs> deals that need to be made right now, but so far, one deal, and that is important. That is right. It is in Los Angeles, Hollywood, we're talking about. Let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, September 25th. This breaking overnight, a tentative deal in the Hollywood writer strike after 146 days and countless picket lines. But there is no deal in D.C. where a government shutdown is looking increasingly likely. The government runs out of money in five days and the GOP still split on a path forward. And bad news for President Joe Biden in a pair of new polls. 56% of Americans disapprove of how he's handling the job. Also on the immigration front, the mayor of El Paso says his city is at a breaking point without enough resources to deal with another surge of migrants as Mexico makes an agreement with the United States to deport people to their home countries. And it is by far the most important story, <laughs> not just in the nation, perhaps the entire world. Taylor Swift cheering on the Kansas City Chiefs, sitting next to Travis Kelsey's mom and fans. They can't get enough of trailer. We're going to work on that one. See you this morning starts right now. Are they really calling it trailer, Travis, Kelsey, Taylor Swift? I mean, I guess it works. I don't think it's better. very catchy. Could we, we should just note, though, that Ohio, great weekend for Ohio. Not Did just the win, Buckeyes, Phil? Buckeyes beating the Irish, but also Travis Kelsey's from Ohio. Okay, there. Ohio all, stays winning, Poppy. All good things, all good things come from Ohio. But this breaking overnight, the Hollywood writers' strike may be coming to an end. After nearly five months, the Writers Guild and the studios, we've learned, have reached a tentative deal, and now the Guild's members will vote on whether to accept it. Despite the deal, Hollywood remains paralyzed. Actors are still on strike as negotiations there drag on. Now, the impact on the economy has been staggering. Economists say the strike has led to more than $5 billion in losses, not only in Los Angeles, but other film and TV production hubs like New York and Georgia. CNN National Correspondent Camila Bernal is live for us in L.A. Uh, Camila, the Writers Guild says this deal is exceptional. They're not technically out of the strike yet. What happens next? Well, there's still a big process here because we need the members to vote on this and ratify it. But look, a lot of the writers that I talked to have told me they're excited, they're relieved. One of them told me, I'm ready to go back to making magic. I'm ready to go back to telling stories. But the Guild is telling them, not yet. No one is allowed to return to work. They're saying they need to figure out the legal language first. What they described it as is just dotting every single I. We do not know what is in this contract, but sources tell Telling CNN that artificial intelligence was really the last sticking point that they had to work through. I want to read part of the statement that the WGA put out, and this is what they're saying. What we have won in this contract, most particularly, Everything we have gained since May 2nd is due to the willingness of this membership to exercise its power, to demonstrate its solidarity, to work side by side, to endure the pain and uncertainty of the past 146 days. So after they figure out the language, there is going to be a leadership vote, and that will likely happen tomorrow. After that, we'll get all of the details on this deal, and the members will be able to ask questions and then vote on it. The first thing that you're 
are likely going to see return to normal, it's the talk shows, the late night shows. Those are really the first ones that will be able to go back on TV. And you're seeing some of those on your screen. The biggest question, though, is what happens to the rest of TV this year and really movies next summer? And the thing is that those also are going to depend on the actors who are on strike as well. These two strikes together have been extremely difficult for this industry. It's sort of a domino effect because it's not just Hollywood. It is really uh, an entire uh, country impacted by these two strikes. Phil? Yeah, no question. Big first step. We'll see how this plays out. Camila Bernal, thank you. Yes. All right, let's bring in CNN contributor, host of Entertainment Tonight, Nichelle Turner. Well, Nichelle, 146 days. They've got this tentative deal. What, what can you tell us about what it looks like is in there? I mean, because for the, the union to come out and say it's exceptional says a lot. Yeah, it, it does say a lot. I mean, I think that the union also had to say something to its members to, to let them know that they were fighting and got some of the things that they, um, you know, w- were were at a stalemate for. That's the use of artificial intelligence and the staffing in writers' rooms. I think those were the two big hangups that they were uh, in the room for the last five days really trying to work out the language in that. So what they're saying to them is, we stood in there, we fought for you, we know what you wanted, and this is what we got. Um, It will be interesting to see tomorrow when the board has that vote, if they do ratify this new agreement. Um, We know we won't see picketers anymore on the picket line, but the WGA has told its members, you are still on strike. So it's not officially over, but it does look like that we're headed toward the finish line in this situation. My assumption has been that if this deal was reached, the actors would follow uh, suit fairly quickly thereafter. But there aren't any real tangible negotiations happening Mm. on that front right now. What's the expectation there? Well, you know, Phil, I, I think that a lot of people would hope that your assumptions are correct. I'm not sure if they are. I mean, the actors um, are, are pretty stalwart in what they're saying as well. I think that this, the, um, the, the, the situation all along was hopefully that the writers would get something done because they went on strike first and then the actors would follow. Um, the actors' union is bigger. It's more powerful. But there's a lot of bad blood there. I mean, the, you know, the, the leadership and the actors' union has been very vocal about how they feel about the heads of the studios. Um, and so, there, you know, there hasn't been a lot of talk. They have not come back to the table in several months. Um, and so we are not really sure what's going to happen there. But there, the hope is that everyone will get this resolved and everyone will get back to work. We have also, most importantly this morning, learned the halftime performer for the Super Bowl. Huge news. Michelle, huge, huge news. What can you tell us? Well, what can I, I, what I can tell you is Usher says this is a bucket list moment for him and mm-hmm. he's being able to fulfill it by performing at the Super Bowl halftime show. I mean, he put out a really fun video announcing it yesterday. Uh, there was a lot of rumbling the last few weeks who it was going to be. Would it be a boy band reunion? Would it be Taylor Swift? And and I think we, we saw that that uh, is not happening. So now we know it's going to be Usher. There were some critics early on, years before, mm-hmm. saying, does Usher have a big enough body of work. I think his Vegas residency and the popularity of that has shown people that there is an appetite for him, that he does have a huge discography. He is an amazing performer, and I think it's going to be a halftime show to remember. There you go. Michelle Turner, thank you.
does Usher have a big enough body of work? Just bangers, banger after banger. Ba- Confession, one of the best albums of all time. Oh, we're supposed to focus on the news, right? Yes, okay. <laughs> also this morning, we've been talking about one deal, one state of negotiations. Move over from LA to DC. Not a lot of daylight in terms of what's happening next. A government shutdown becoming more and more likely as GOP hardliners are holding funding hostage with only five days left to reach a spending deal. Now, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy worked through the weekend still does not have support from Republicans demanding huge spending cuts that they cannot force the Democrat-led Senate or White House to accept. One way out of the crisis, McCarthy could work with Democrats on a temporary spending bill, but the most conservative Republicans are threatening that that could cost McCarthy his job. We should have separate, single-subject spending bills. Kevin McCarthy promised that in January. He is in breach of that promise. So I'm not here to hold the government hostage. I'm here to hold Kevin McCarthy to his word. If Speaker McCarthy ultimately allows a deal to pass with Democratic votes, would you support ousting him from the Speaker's chair? That would be something I would look strongly at, ma'am. If we, if we do away with our duty that we said we were going to do, See, as Lauren Fox joins us now. Um, all right, Lauren, uh, they worked through the weekend. Uh, Garrett Graves and, and Patrick McHenry, the uh, speaker's top two allies who helped negotiate the debt ceiling deal, are in the room. They're working on this. What's the path forward? Yeah, well, what you are going to see and what the path forward are are two separate items, Phil. The path forward, of course, for McCarthy is to decide whether or not he's going to work with Democrats. We'll see if he gets there by the end of the week. But what you will see from House Republicans is they are going to move forward with their plan to vote on individual spending bills. These are bills that do not have support in the Senate. These are also bills that we don't know if they have the votes to pass. Over the weekend, Republican leadership tried to encourage their members to rally around a short-term spending bill that included border security as a way to have a negotiating position with the Senate. The argument from leadership is that if we enter into a shutdown, our hand is not going to get any stronger. But that message does not seem to be resonating with some of the hardliners that McCarthy has been dealing with over the last several months, including Matt Gates, who you heard from there. So right now, the question for McCarthy is when the end of the week comes and the Senate potentially sends him over a clean spending bill, just a couple of weeks stopgap measure to get them over this deadline, will he put it on the floor? I tried to press the speaker on this question on Friday. He said it was hypothetical. And if it happened, to give him a call, Phil. It's not hypothetical. It's almost certainly going to happen. We will see how this plays out. Lauren Fox, busy week ahead. Thank you. Right ahead for us, growing calls from Democrats, both nationally and in New Jersey, for Senator Bob Menendez to resign after he was indicted on bribery charges. There is no way that any public official has any legal or plausible or ethical explanation for having $500,000 in cash stuffed in jackets and envelopes throughout their home, gold bars, that have the fingerprints and DNA of someone who you were attempting to fix the system for. To any New Jersey voters watching right now who may have concerns that, again, you're facing scrutiny over corruption, what is your response to them? The response to that is simply that, number one, uh, this inquiry will end up, I believe, in absolutely nothing. And if anyone looks at my history on Egypt, uh, they would know that by both denying aid to Egypt, denying uh, arms sales to Egypt, criticizing its human rights record, I'm not in a position to be helpful to anyone as it relates to Egypt. 
Well, that was the last time that New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez was on CNN. That was back in April, and you heard him there tell us he was not in a position to be helpful to anyone relating Egypt. But federal prosecutors disagree, saying he took hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes and cash in gold bars and expensive gifts in exchange for helping New, Jer- New Jersey meat companies secure a big contract with the Egyptian government. The New Jersey Advanced Media reports he's going to hold a press conference, news conference this morning. Now, Menendez says he's, quote, not going anywhere as he faces growing calls to resign from within his own party. I do believe that it is in the best interests uh, for Senator Menendez to resign in this moment. As you mentioned, consistency matters. It shouldn't matter whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. The details in this indictment are extremely serious. They involve uh, the nature of of not just his, but all of our seats in Congress. This is a very serious charge. There's no question about it. In terms of resignation, that's a decision to be made by Senator Menendez and the people of New Jersey. Well, these are serious and shocking charges. Uh, Bribery, corruption. Um, I've never seen anything like this. I think uh, Senator Menendez is going to have to think long and hard about the cloud that's going to hang over his service in the United States Senate. Also, six of nine House Democrats in New Jersey have already called for Menendez to resign, as has Pennsylvania Democratic Senator John Fetterman. So who is defending Menendez? Republican Congressman George Santos, who we should note is facing 13 federal criminal charges related to alleged financial crimes himself. I think uh, due process uh, is important, and I think he has the right to defend himself. When did we walk away from the fabric of our Constitution that everybody has a presumption of innocence before anything else? So I don't, I don't think he should resign. Joining us now, New York Times reporter Tracy Tully. She covers New Jersey for the paper. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Just to read to people from this indictment, quote, among other actions, Menendez provided sensitive U.S. government information and took other steps that secretly aided the government of Egypt. Explain why this is different than a handful of years ago when it ended in a mistrial. Because this is about U.S. state secrets. Yeah, it's it's a very different indictment than we saw back then. It, it accuses him of two things, both helping Egypt, but also trying to influence two, or several criminal prosecutions, one in state court. A few in state court and at least one in federal court. The difference in the response from New Jersey Democrats uh, has been dramatic Mm -hmm. from the first indictment, where you saw everyone, the second the indictment came in, backing him, supporting him, contributing to his legal defense fund. Um, With the exception of George Santos, who is not a New Jersey Democrat, he's a New York Republican. I'm not sure that's the ally you necessarily want to have behind you in a situation like this. I haven't seen anybody prominent really coming out in a major way to defend him. What does that tell you about what's next? He's he's alone. You know, he's he doesn't have the support that he had back in 2015. Today he's about to go to back to Union City, which is his home turf, where he was raised, where he was mayor. He was on the school board as a 20 year old, and you know it's it's home. And he's really focusing on going back there. Um, but yeah, I mean it 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 means a tougher road ahead if he should seek re-election. Mm-hmm. Right. He can technically still serve. He can't be the chair of that committee, but he can still serve. Senator, Democratic Senator from New Jersey, Cory Booker, has not said anything yet. Mm-hmm. Does that change today? I think that we may hear 
something from Senator Booker sooner rather than later. I don't know what he will say. He's been a very close friend and ally to Senator Menendez, for, and they've been good partners. Okay. Can you just real quick, for context, for people who might not understand Senator Menendez or kind of New Jersey politics, um, his uh, weight inside the state is significant. And part of the reason everybody got behind him after the first indictment is he has, there's some fear that comes with taking him on or going against him. Fear, I think he underscored when he... Uh, when there was a mistrial, then he basically said, anybody who didn't come, stay with me, I remember who you are. I'm paraphrasing here. Right. Is it, well, how, contextualize him in the state of New Jersey politics. He's, he's a survivor. He's been there forever. Um, he came up through Hudson County, which is like kind of a bare-knuckle political area. Um, and he, the, the climate, too, is the difference... There's a Democratic governor, so were he to step down, the Democratic governor would appoint, appoint yeah. versus way back when there was a Republican governor at the time. So the math is a little bit different. Tracy Tully, thanks for your reporting on this. Appreciate it. Well, one of the star witnesses in the January 6th hearing says she's, quote, coming out of hiding as she prepares to release a book with new allegations. Former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson sat down for her first TV interview since her testimony with CBS Sunday Morning. Her new book includes a, Rudy, a new claim that Rudy Giuliani groped her, which he denies. Hutchinson is defending her testimony to the January 6th committee, including an anecdote about Donald Trump allegedly lunging for the steering wheel of his presidential limo when the Secret Service refused to take him to the Capitol on the day of the insurrection. I felt torn a lot of the time because I, I knew what I knew and I wanted to come forward with what I knew. But at the same time, I didn't want to feel like I was betraying them, and I didn't want to feel like I was betraying my colleagues. You admit in the book, you've admitted here that you told less than the truth, that you lied. Why should we believe you now? Because what would I have to gain by coming forward? You know, it would have been easier for me to continue being complicit. Hutchinson will speak with our very own Jake Tapper this week. You can hear more on what she says happened inside the White House as those protesters stormed the Capitol. That interview airs tomorrow, 4 p.m. Eastern. Well, President Biden's approval rating continues to struggle even among Democrats. We're breaking down brand new polling and the 2024 race for the White House. Plus, Biden and Trump set to square off in Michigan this week as auto workers continue their strike. We'll have a preview of their dueling trips to this battleground state. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. A pair of new polls raising some fresh concerns for Democrats about President Biden's chances of winning re-election in the fall. Next fall, NBC News. This survey released over the weekend shows the president's job approval is underwater. 56% say they disapprove of his performance so far, and that trashed with CNN's poll of polls on his average approval rating. Another poll released this weekend from The Washington Post and ABC News is painting a similar picture from within Biden's own party. Nearly two-thirds of Democrats surveyed say they want another option at the top of the ticket in 2024. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg dismissing the concerns when asked about those polls. We're an administration that isn't all about the polls. We recognize that if we get the results uh, over time, people will come to appreciate that. Joining us now to discuss Washington correspondent for Bloomberg, uh, Saleh Mosin, politics reporter for Semaphore, Shelby Talcott, and CNN political commentator and Spectrum News political anchor, Errol Lewis. Guys, welcome to the table. Thank you very much. All right, Shelby, I'll start with you. The, the polling at this point, 14 months out, uh, national polls, not totally sure how much you want to grab onto them and say this means everything. However, there's a consistent thread here in terms of where the president sits within his own party. If you're the Biden team right now, what are you thinking when you see these numbers? Well, I'm thinking, first of all, and I've talked to a lot of Democrats close to the White House about the fact that particularly on things like the economy, it seems like their messaging or whatever they're doing is just not resonating with voters. So the numbers that they're seeing coming out of the White House, voters aren't feeling that. And so when I talk to people, they say, well, just give it time. As you said, we still have a while to go until general election. And the more that they push out this messaging, a lot of people close to the White House believe that it will kind of naturally begin to resonate with voters. But I think it's clearly a concern. And I also think it's a concern um, how many voters seem to have an issue with Biden's age and questions about his health. We've talked about this before. Uh, A lot of voters seem to want someone younger. Now, the interesting thing is Trump is not necessarily that much younger But the concern over Biden's health and age is much higher than the concern over Trump's. Errol, the fact that it was a Washington Post ABC poll Mm -hmm. and what it showed in terms of a hypothetical 2024 matchup between Biden and Trump is is huge. It has Trump leading by about 10 points, 51 to 42. But both ABC and The Washington Post added to their poll results by a caveat, which is unique for them to do, basically saying this could be an outlier because the NBC poll has the two head-to-head at 46-46. What should yes. we make of that? Uh, you should make of it that the, they weren't entirely certain that they got this right. And why? we should... Why publish it? It's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why, why, why do people think that it might be off? Well, if you look at it a little bit, and we don't have the full cross-tabulations, we don't have all of the numbers, but this poll assumes, among other things, that support from, say, black voters and Latino voters is only a 50 percent for Joe Biden. Now, you know, the way he actually performed in 2020, he won the Latino vote two to one and something like three to one or more with black voters. So if that changed, this poll is, you know, I think owes us an explanation or or those who want to rely on it should should ask themselves, 
Well, what changed? And mm-hmm. what changed in the last six months mm-hmm. with Latino voters to suddenly abandon? If, is that the problem? So if you wanted to compare it to a, a car that doesn't seem to be functioning, you've got to ask yourself, is it out of gas? Is there something wrong with the carburetor? Uh, is it defective from the factory? What is going on here? Yeah. And I don't think the poll really suggests that. I don't, I don't know if it's time to really panic. Democrats will panic. We know that that's what they do. Uh, but, but the reality is, unless something has fundamentally changed, if, unless, you know, important parts of the Democratic coalition have either defected or are seriously annoyed at the leadership, you know, the suggestion that women are going to walk away or suburban voters or college educated voters or black or Latino voters, um, unless you've got an explanation uh, or, or a story that kind of matches that, it really is too soon to panic. Yeah. I think. And I think it's a great point because we, I think we seize on individual polls, particularly national polls at this stage in the game. And it's to some degree nonsensical. I understand looking at it for trend lines. That don't make sense. Snapshot in time. There are outliers. If the coalition that you're talking about ends up tracking with this poll, uh, Donald Trump's going to win with like an 84 Reagan style level blowout. And that nobody sees that happening. What is interesting, though, and what consistent poll after poll after poll is on the economy. And you've covered this issue closer than anybody over multiple administrations. And I'm interested because Shelby makes this point in terms of connecting what this administration has done, both legislatively and through executive action, uh, the broader macro numbers versus how people are feeling. Where is the disconnect, do you think? A lot of it is in the messaging, but a lot of it is just when you're at the grocery store checkout, what are you seeing? You can hear a narrative from President Biden, who is hopscotching across the country to tell everyone that Bidenomics is infrastructure, it's construction jobs. But all people are seeing is that egg prices are really high. I'm being told they've come down. They're still really high. And my wages have just not come up. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is also it depends on who you ask. Republicans see Bidenomics as inflation. A lot of Democrats see it as job creation. And then there's the people in between. And there's a lot of apathy right there, right in between. Mm -hmm. I think you make a great point. And then Shelby adding on to what's to come. Student loan repayments start October 1st. No idea where this UAW strike is going to land. That's why you've got Trump and Biden going there this week. So you have you also have GDP predictions. I think Goldman Sachs prediction for growth in the fourth quarter is not good. So those are things, by the way, that haven't even hit people yet. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a long ways to the general election. There's time for things to move in either direction. I think you make a really good point that, you know, things can change. This is one poll. This is just a few polls. Um, And I think at this point, it is in part up to the Biden administration to kind of hone in that messaging. But a lot of it is not necessarily going to be up to them because we don't know what's going to happen. And with why, all these issues. I don't know. You covered this White House. Why are they talking about it li- like this, knowing what people are feeling? I'm not on the panel. I'm just <laughs> supposed to ask that. <laughs> Listen, there's a cautionary tale for, for this White House. You totally bailed Phil out. Keep <laughs> going, Earl. You're doing great. The, 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 the cautionary tale for this White House is, uh, is 1990, when yep. uh, the presidency of George H.W. Bush was endangered because there was a recession. Mm-hmm. And technically, we were coming out of the recession. It's just people didn't feel it in time, and they voted him out of office. And that, that's what they want to try and avoid above, above everything. It would be you know, a, a great problem for them if, while they're doing all of the right things, and technically inflation is coming down, but if people just don't believe it, they don't feel it, then they're not going to act on it. Um, that's, I think, when they say, give us time, they are racing it's, against it's, time. It's technically not coming down on things like food, energy in some respects. Well, inflation is the rate of change. So the rate of change is coming down. And, you know, okay, fine. So 
you know, the, the prices are too high, but and they're still getting higher, yeah. but they're not getting high as quickly as they were last year. By the time you've explained that to a voter, they're <laughs> like, you know what? When you're explaining, you're losing? Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, look, we all feel it. You know, you fill up that gas tank, it's like, wait a second. I know. <laughs> what what just happened California here? California was like six bucks and that's in one what, place last That's what week. voters ultimately vote on is kitchen table issues, yeah. things that are affecting them. Uh, they think time will allow oh, their now, legislative now policies to sink in. No, I just, you know, you caught me off guard. I was a little unsettled, and I know there's smart people around me who can answer better. <laughs> okay. And they also think the contrast is the biggest thing. And when, once you put head-to-head him and Trump, and you look at Trump's economic record, and then you look at what's actually, uh, particularly on issues like abortion, across the board, they feel like they have a net positive. So, will that carry the day? Oh, wow. um, we should ask the panel next hour. Okay. <laughs> Shelby, Errol, uh, Soleil, thanks, guys, very much. We appreciate it. So Phil just mentioned uh, there's a new detail deal rather between the United States and Mexico. This is aiming to ease the migrant crisis. It is really overwhelming border towns. We've got those deal details ahead. And happening today, some residents of Lahaina will begin returning to what's left of their homes seven weeks after those devastating wildfires. What they're expecting to find, that's ahead. Well, this morning, there's a new agreement between Mexico and the U.S. to deport migrants at border cities back home to their countries. It's part of an effort to fight the massive surge in illegal crossings in recent weeks. Mexican officials have also agreed to prevent migrants from using railways to reach the border. Now, this agreement comes as Texas border towns are feeling the weight of the crisis, with the mayor of El Paso saying the city is at its breaking point. CNN's Rosa Flores joins us live from Houston. Uh, Rosa, I was reading your reporting throughout the course of the weekend. There's a ton to unpack here, but what's the significance of this agreement? You know, Phil, this is really significant because it could be the difference between the U.S. seeing another surge on the southern border and not. You see, what Mexican officials here are that they are going to, quote, depressurize their northern Mexican border cities by deporting migrants back to their home countries, which in essence means Mexico would be rerouting the flow of migration before migrants actually get to the U.S. southern border. U.S. Representative Henry Cuellar over the weekend uh, applauded this move, saying that this is a strategy that has worked in the past under Presidents Obama and President Trump. But it's notable to uh, add that Um, uh, advocacy organizations, immigration advocates and human rights organizations have in the past condemned this type of strategy. From Mexico to the riverbanks of Eagle Pass, thousands of migrants have crossed the border, wading across the Rio Grande, crawling under the razor wire and overwhelming Eagle Pass and other southern Texas cities. We're here abandoned, we're on the border, we're asking for help, this is unacceptable. Please, just enforce the laws that are on the books. In an effort to, quote, depressurize northern Mexico border cities, the United States and Mexico have brokered a new agreement. Meeting in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico on Friday, the countries agreed to a 15-action plan, which includes Mexico deporting migrants to their home countries by land and air. U.S. Border Patrol agents will be able to expel migrants to the bridge that connects El Paso to Ciudad Juarez. Mexico has also agreed to carry out negotiations with Venezuela, Brazil, Nicaragua, Colombia and Cuba to determine their willingness to accept citizens deported from the U.S.-Mexico border. The agreement also includes Mexico submitting a daily report of the number of migrants on its train system, establishing checkpoints along the rail route, and conducting interventions on railways and highways, according to Mexican officials. 
Look, you know, what we need to do is to do this. One, we need to have repercussions at the border. What does that mean? You got to deport people and you got to show those images of people being deported. When was the last time we saw people going the other way instead of just seeing people flow in? On the ground in Eagle Pass, CNN witnessed the reality for migrants. Just like Jorge Carrullo of Venezuela and his three-year-old child. According to a federal law enforcement source, Border Patrol agents in the Rio Grande Valley are encountering about a thousand migrants per day. This reality leaves Texas border towns like El Paso at their breaking point with thousands of migrants in custody. You know, we're, we seem to be doing the same thing over and over again. They keep sending us money. We keep trying to find shelter and we try to make sure people are off the street, make sure our community is safe, make sure they're safe. But then the day, the immigration system has not changed. Now, back to the agreement between the U.S. and Mexico, it's notable that we know more from Mexican officials about what Mexico is doing in this agreement than what the United States is doing. It was U.S. Customs and Border Protection that attended this meeting on Friday. We've asked U.S. CBP a lot of questions. We haven't heard back, but U.S. CBP did issue a statement yesterday uh, from the acting commissioner saying in part, quote, the United States and Mexico remain committed to stemming the flow of irregular migration driven by unscrupulous smugglers while maintaining access to lawful pathways. So in other words, them doubling down on the enforcement action. It's important to note as well that Mexico's top diplomat announced on Friday that Mexico's president wants to meet with President Biden in November in Washington, D.C. Among the things that the president wants to discuss is, of course, migration. Back to you guys. Rosa Flores, great reporting as always. Thank you. So today, people who live in Lahaina on Maui will be able to go home. They are able to return to their homes for the first time since they were just destroyed in the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. The disaster area has been split into zones. The first zone has been cleared for reentry today. Officials say it will likely take about three months before everyone can go back to their property. And the governor warns people likely are going to have to wear protective gear because of the potentially toxic ash. This comes seven weeks after that fire killed at least 97 people, officials just released the names of six newly confirmed victims, and they include an 11-year-old little boy. Well, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, is scheduled to step down this week. We have new CNN reporting about his legacy and controversies. That's next. And before we go to break the lottery, Powerball jackpot growing, $785 million, now the fourth largest prize in history. There have now been 28 consecutive drawings without a grand prize winner since one lucky person took home more than a billion bucks in July. Officials say the odds of hitting the jackpot won in more than 292 million. So good luck. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, will retire from his post at the end of this week. Milley served in that role under both President Trump and President Biden, and he served during the political upheaval of the 2020 election, the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the war in Ukraine. Our Katie Bolillas has new reporting on all of it this morning. She joins us now. Morning. Um, he, morning. He has been broadly criticized by Trump, both while he was still serving for the former president and as recently as last week. What can you tell us about his legacy as he steps down from this role? Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, Poppy, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is meant to be the president's top military advisor. Uh, they're outside of the chain of command, and it's supposed to be a strictly apolitical role. But in ways big and small during the Trump era, the military was often sort of sucked into the chaotic domestic political environment of the moment in ways that Milley was often forced to respond to, in particular surrounding uh, the events of January 6th. Uh, Milley at that point took a number of sort of extraordinary steps uh, to try to safeguard against some of the president's more outlandish impulses, as well as just kind of the general chaos of the moment. He's also become sort of the face of the so-called woke military for some critics on the right who say he has leaned too far into LGBTQ issues, as well as his public support for renaming army bases in the South that were named after Confederate generals. And one detail that we learned, Poppy, about the degree to which Milley has sort of been attuned to the domestic politics surrounding both the military and himself personally is that every morning his staff pull the transcripts from the primetime Fox shows uh, like uh, like Sean Hannity and at one point Tucker Carlson to kind of monitor them to see if they are talking about Mark Milley. And so now there is this big debate, I think, over uh, his legacy and, and his sort of tenure. Did he did his conduct sort of fit an extraordinary political moment or did he sort of lean into the domestic politics uh, far enough that it has done some sort of a, made some irrevocable changes to the apolitical role of chairman of the Joint Chiefs? He's also profiled in the big, you know, front page piece of The Atlantic as being the man who stood between Trump and the Constitution and the steps that he took. Look, he apologized for the Lafayette Square moment, right, saying that that was a pure political. He shouldn't have done it. Uh, but in other ways, things that he did through his tenure to stand between Trump and actions that would have been antithetical to the Constitution. Yeah, I think one way that we sort of found that Milley would kind of try to stand in the breach, so to speak, is he would listen to these tirades from President Trump and, and he would just stay silent. And if the president didn't give him a direct order, which he often would not, that would allow Milley to essentially walk out of mm -hmm. Trump's office and just kind of not do anything. And of course, for some of his critics on the right, that's a, a dangerous perversion of civilian control of the U.S. military, which is this kind of bedrock principle. Mm -hmm. Your reporting is fascinating, Katie Bo. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks. Bill. Well, the breaking news overnight, the writer's strike could finally be coming to an end. What we know about the potential deal and when shows could be back on air. Plus, he's Chiefs captain and she's on the bleachers. The new details behind <laughs> Taylor Swift's big game day appearance. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. So has Taylor Swift entered her red era? And OMG, the NFL has a Super Bowl halftime show, Confession. That reminds me. Bob, did you see all the connectivity there? It's just, it it's, I'm glad they made you read that intro, OMG. I respect great writing, and that's great writing right there. By the way, Coy Wire is here. Coy, uh, we're going to connect all of those dots in a second. But first and foremost, the Miami Dolphins, I have no <laughs> puns uh, or pop culture to tie to. They just destroyed 
The Broncos yesterday. Oh, man. You may not have puns, but they had punishment. Mm. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I would see something like this. The Miami Dolphins putting up 70 points in a game. They told the Broncos, welcome to our house. And it took them less than 90 seconds for them to show, like DJ Khaled, we the best offense in the NFL. Tua Tungvaloa feeling this moment with four touchdown passes. Tyreek Hill going 54 yards on this one. Cheetah, a man of the people, hopping into the stands. But this only begins the big game. Raheem Mostert moseying into the end zone for one of his four touchdowns. And watch this celebration. Come on, shake your body, baby. Do that conga, kind (laughs) of. Miami had 35 points at the half. And then in the fourth quarter, how about rookie Devon A-Chain? Like a run-up way chain. 67 yards, so swift for one of his four touchdowns as well. Miami, 70 points. They're the most in a game since 1966 by any one team. Its NFL regular season record was 72. All right, speaking of Swift, sparks flying in Kansas City as Taylor Swift sits next to Mama Kelsey after an invite from Mr. Perfectly Fine, the Chiefs' Travis Kelsey. So you knew his quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, was going to find a way to make sure Trav caught a touchdown. Nothing new as Casey's original power couple revs it up for seven catches and this touchdown. T-Swift trending with this reaction right here. <laughs> uh, Chiefs embarrassed the Bears 41-10. to 10. My goodness. I mean, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, it had been rumored that they were maybe dating, and it looks maybe more like that might be the case. Can we just talk about, like, we try and be creative and funny with puns, and then, then Koi comes in <laughs> so and just, good. just absolutely destroys our efforts? Punishment. Yeah. We the best. You're the best, Koi. Okay. You're the best. <laughs> Did I see a big Beguin uh, reference in there, in there? I have no idea. Stay here. Let me bring in Nichelle Turner. Koi, stay with us. I keep saying to the team this morning, I'm like, do we know anything about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey? So I'm just going to ask you, do we know anything? Are they dating? What is happening? Whatever that means. I mean, I think we're all seeing this play out in front of us. But I will have to say, you know, Taylor Swift wrote Mr. Perfectly Fine about Joe Jonas. So I don't know if Travis Kelsey wants to actually be Mr. Perfectly Fine because that was a breakup song. So he might want a new lyric uh, coming up. What we do know is that Travis has been very vocal about the fact that he's um, pursuing Taylor in some way, shape or form. He went on his podcast and talked about the fact that he wrote his number on a friendship bracelet, took it to her concert, tried to give it to her, but she didn't get it. He's been very vocal about wanting her to come to a game. Uh, we know now that she was there. We don't know if they'd connected before, but uh, we do know that they did leave the game together. They were seen leaving together. They were seen getting into his car. And here's the thing. You guys know, you talked about the era, if she's in her red era. Well, we do know the 1989 era, era was a huge era for Taylor Swift. And really, when she became a superstar, a lot of her fans loved that era. And the outfit that Travis Kelsey had on after the game was a print called the 1989 bedroom painting. So this is just like this. She feels so coordinated. I'm I'm just a Jason Kelsey guy in a Travis Kelsey world coin show. Thank you guys. As always, we appreciate it. All right. CNN This Morning continues now.
Well, good morning, everyone. A lot of big news to get to this morning. Let's get things started with five things to know for this Monday, September 25th. Breaking overnight, there is a tentative deal in the Hollywood writer's strike after 146 days and countless picket lines. There is no deal in Washington, D.C., though, where a government shutdown is looking increasingly likely. The government runs out of money in five days and the Republican Party split is very evident. And bad news for President Joe Biden in a pair of new polls. 56% of Americans disapprove of how he's doing the job. Also, the mayor of El Paso says his city is at a, quote, breaking point without enough resources to deal with a surge of migrants, as Mexico makes an agreement with the U.S. to deport people to their home countries. And historic delivery for NASA, a capsule carrying parts of an asteroid just touched down on Earth. We'll get into it. CNN This Morning starts now. everyone so glad you're with us are you more excited about taylor and travis or yep. this asteroid or probably you're probably usher. more into the oh, usher. usher no it's usher is the super yes usher okay usher in the super bowl oh yeah and washington still has to figure it out but the oh, other yeah, coast has figured half of it out there is a tentative deal and a good sign for the first time in 140 plus days yeah New this morning the hollywood writers strike could be coming to an end after studios reached that tentative deal with the writers guild Now that is video of writers celebrating in Los Angeles after the agreement was announced. Guild members still need to vote and decide whether to accept the deal. And Hollywood remains shut down. Actors, of course, are still on strike with no end in sight. And the impact on the economy has been huge. Economists say that strike has led to more than $5 billion in losses, not only in L.A., but in other big TV and film production areas like right here in New York, also in Georgia. Our colleague Camilla Bernal following all of it in Los Angeles. We don't have the deal yet, right? They got to vote on it. We don't have all the details. But notable that the union, the Writers Guild, called it exceptional. Does that mean they got a lot of what they wanted? That's what a lot of these writers think. This is huge. They've been fighting for so long now that a lot of them just, you saw the celebration, they're excited, they're thankful, they say they want to get back to work. But the Guild's also saying, you got to wait, we're still on strike. You can't go out and work just yet because what they're saying is, first they got to get through some of the details. They're calling it dotting the I's. They have to figure out the language in the contract. Then what happens is the leadership will take a few votes and that's likely going to to happen tomorrow. After that vote happens, then the deal will be made public and we'll be able to see exactly what these two sides agreed on. And then the members will have to vote to ratify. Once that is ratified, you're going to start seeing some changes, maybe not a lot, but you're starting to see uh, late night shows, talk shows. Those will likely be the first to come on air after this strike, after all of it is settled. Um, and the big question though, is still what's going to happen to the rest of the year in terms of TV and next year, summer movies. Uh, the question here is what's going to happen to the writers. They've also been, or the actors, excuse me, they've also been on strike since July. And so these two strikes together really have paralyzed Hollywood and the economy here. It's sort of a domino effect because it's not just this industry. It's so many others that have been impacted by this. And so there is this sort of feeling that maybe this deal will motivate or pressure or even speed up the process with the actors. But we'll have to wait and see what happens with SAG-AFTRA because productions really are not going to be able to go back to normal uh, if the actors haven't 
made a deal. And so both of these things have to come together. But already leaders here in California reacting and saying this is essentially uh, going to continue to help the economy here. Governor Gavin Newsom saying this is a major piece of California's economy going back to work. And the mayor here in Los Angeles also saying, you know, people are going to be able to get back on their feet. It's been really, really difficult over the last couple of months. And this is really a sigh of relief for a lot of people in this industry, Poppy. Yeah, and we'll see what it means for the actors still on strike. Um, Camilla, thanks very much. Phil. Well, from one place where there is a tentative deal to one place where we're not sure what on earth is going to happen, and they only have under six days to figure it out. Obviously, this is the Capitol building, and a shutdown at this point is looming. Where is all the pressure at this point? Well, there's just one person you need to pay attention to. That's Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It is within his conference, the intraparty warfare that has been playing out, not just for the entirety of uh, Kevin McCarthy's time as Speaker, but also in a very acute manner over the course of the last several weeks. So where do things stand right now? Again, this is the Capitol building. Here's what you need to know. This is the United States Senate over here. The U.S. Senate has been waiting for House Republicans to act. So far, they haven't. And so the U.S. Senate on Tuesday is going to start in a bipartisan way, moving its own short-term bill, a short-term bill that would have bipartisan support and would need bipartisan support in the House, which is over here. And where are they? Well, they worked throughout the course of the weekend And we don't actually know where they are at this point in time. They are still trying to find a path forward because while the Senate is operating in a bipartisan way, the House, at least at this point in time, is not. Speaker Kevin McCarthy very aware of the threat to his job if he brings Democrats in. So what is McCarthy's tentative plan at this point in time? Over the weekend, working through the idea of passing uh, full-year spending bills, at least a package of them initially, that would have steep cuts to where the current baseline is, And in the middle of all that, pass a short-term stopgap bill and add border security to it. Let's be abundantly clear about this. None of this has any pathway forward in a Democratic-led Senate or with a Democrat in the White House. They're just trying to do something to get into negotiations. Again, they only have less than six days. Here's something to step back and keep in mind here. There was a deal that was supposed to make this process a lot easier, the debt limit vote that happened back in May. This passed with significant bipartisan support. It was supposed to set the baseline for the appropriations negotiations. And what I want you to focus on here is this breakdown of the actual vote itself. These are Republican votes in favor of the deal. 149 Republicans voted in favor for the deal that set the groundwork for all of the appropriations process going forward. About two weeks later, Speaker Kevin McCarthy, with pressure from conservatives, walked away from that baseline. Here's the problem. Senators were still operating on that baseline. Democrats say that's the deal. Stick to that baseline. The White House does as well. Apparently, Republicans do not. And that is because hardliners, House Freedom Caucus members, have asked for steeper cuts, saying that was the reason that they allowed Speaker McCarthy to become Speaker on the 15th vote back in January in the first place. So they've walked away from a deal that existed entirely. Here's the other problem McCarthy has. While he's getting pressure from conservatives and hardliners, a handful of members won't even vote to move forward on procedural process. These are 18 members of the House Republican Conference that come from districts that President Biden won by a sizable margin. Of these 18 members, all but one, George Santos, supported that debt limit vote. All but one basically supported, right now, a structure that House Republicans have walked away from. Those are the members that gave Kevin McCarthy the speakership and the majority. Those are the members he needs to protect. One thing to keep a very close eye on as this week goes forward, that's the moderates right here. Don Bacon, Brian Fitzpatrick, Dusty Johnson, David Valadeo. There's a couple more as well. Members of the, of the bipartisan group, the problem solvers, they are working to find some type of pathway forward. But as it currently stands, no pathway forward for McCarthy. If he wants to go Republican only, he's going to need Democrats eventually. The question right now is, when's he going to come to that conclusion? Bobby? Bobby? 
Five days and counting, Phil. Thank you for that. Well, this morning, New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez is facing calls to resign, by the way, from some Democrats as well, after being indicted on federal corruption charges. Prosecutors are accusing Menendez and his wife of accepting thousands of dollars in bribes, including cash, gold, lavish gifts. You see him on the screen in exchange for using his office to aid Egypt's government. Now, a growing number of lawmakers from his own party think he should step down. In this indictment are extremely serious. They involve uh, the nature of of not just his, but all of our seats in Congress. This is a very serious charge. There's no question about it. In terms of resignation, that's a decision to be made by Senator Menendez and the people of New Jersey. Well, these are serious and shocking charges. Uh, bribery, corruption. Um, I've never seen anything like this. I think uh, Senator Menendez is going to have to think long and hard about the cloud that's going to hang over his service in the United States Senate. Democratic uh, senator from Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, has called on him to resign. Menendez has denied the charges. He says, quote, I'm not going anywhere. Kara Scannell has reporting on this and joins us this morning. They're so serious that if convicted, he could face prison time. Yeah, I mean, these charges have a maximum of, of sentence of 20 years in prison. That doesn't normally happen for someone, especially a, a first-time offender, but they are serious charges. And, you know, the, the eyes now are on Menendez and what's going to happen this week. And so we are expecting he may give a press conference today. NewJersey.com is reporting that, citing a, a someone familiar with um, his plans. So we're waiting to see if he does, but he has been defiant. So there's no belief that he's going to change his mind and resign at this point. Uh, you know, he is due in court on Wednesday. There is a summons for him, his wife, and the three co-defendants to appear. Uh, it's possible he will be arraigned on those charges then. You know, he has has made it very clear he's, you know, believes he's going to fight this, right? I mean, he's saying he's not going anywhere, he's not stepping down. And this is, you know, the second time in a decade that Menendez is in this same position. He didn't resign then. Uh, he's very clear he's not going to resign now. But, you know, as you were saying, I mean, these charges, he's facing three counts. Uh, they all relate to, you know, receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes from these three New Jersey businessmen um, and taking steps to potentially aid Egypt and to try to interfere with some criminal investigations affecting these men. Or to get people into positions of power in his state that would benefit him. Right. And, and benefit these these businessmen who were funneling the money to him and funneling it, you know, in a way that, according to prosecutors, you know, envelopes stuffed with cash in jackets bearing Menendez's name with the DNA of one of the businessmen on the envelopes. And then also gold bars that they also allegedly got as part of this bribery scheme. And what people just on their screen, those are photos from the actual indictment. I think that was so stunning to see on Friday when it came out. Thank you very much, Kara. Well, we've broken down all the power dynamics on Capitol Hill, but what will a government shutdown mean for everyday Americans? We're going to tell you what's at stake. The mayor of New Orleans declaring a state of emergency as the federal government tries to delay or avoid a climate disaster that would threaten the area's drinking water. A shutdown would include, uh, just in the transportation side alone, shutting down air traffic control training at the exact moment when the country recognizes the need for more, not less, ATC staffing, and when we finally got cancellations back at or below normal rates. And the air traffic controllers who would be working in the towers, they wouldn't get paid. They're under enough stress as it is doing that job. 
That was Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg warning of air travel disruptions if Congress fails to pass a bill to fund the government before the September 30th deadline. That, of course, is five days away. Federal agencies have already started the formal process of preparing for a shutdown, which could have an enormous impact on all Americans. Let's take a look at some of the actual consequences to this debate on Capitol Hill. First, air travel. During the 2019 shutdown, hundreds of TSA officers called out of work, many of them, to find other ways to make money. The White House now warning there could be potentially a significant delay and longer wait times. What about public health and safety? The White House says the FDA, quote, could be forced to delay food safety inspections. There could also be risks to drinking water as the EPA rolls back most of its inspection activity at facilities. Also, food assistance. The Department of Agriculture says people enrolled in SNAP, as food stamps are formerly known, will receive benefits through October. But what happens after that? Very unknown. And some of the country's most beloved treasures, such as museums and national parks, they could be affected or closed. Those are just some of the ripple effects of a potential shutdown. But the first feel the pinch. Almost all of the country's three and a half million federal workers, they're going to go without pay, including active duty military, much of federal law enforcement. For many of them, a shutdown would strain their finances, as it did during the record 35-day funding lapse just a few years ago. The largest federal employee union recently noted that during that shutdown, quote, members struggled to pay bills and to feed their families. They drove for ride shares, went to food banks, and were forced to take out loans that caused some employees years of hardship. With us now is the president of that union, Everett Kelly. His union, the American Federation of Government Employees, has 750,000 members, making it the largest federal union in the country. Appreciate you being with us, Everett. Good morning. Uh, you, you Good morning. detailed to CNN recently, just a couple of weeks ago, that a number of the people that work under your union really live paycheck to paycheck. Can you explain what even a week or two of a government shutdown would mean for them? I mean, uh, let me say, Poppy, first of all, that, you know, my, uh, the people that work for America, people that we represent in American Federation of Government Employees, is no different from uh, America's workforce in general. 60% of the American workforce live from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, the people that I represent are no different. Uh, one week without a paycheck could be devastating. I mean, uh, because people struggle. I mean, people struggle to pay their bills. People struggle to pay uh, a house note, car note, and those types of things. This is the issue that we would face in the event of a shutdown. Are your workers that you've heard from betting the government is going to shut down? Are they preparing for that right now? Yes, we are encouraging our members to prepare uh, for a shutdown. Uh, it uh, seems to be uh, uh, inevitable that mm. it's, it's probably going to happen. And so we're encouraging our members to uh, prepare for a shutdown, yes. Wow, inevitable. I, I, you know, there are some uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill, by the way, who are uh, responsible for voting on this in the House, who think it's not a big deal. Let me read you what uh, Congressman Andy Biggs, a Republican of Arizona, said, quote, don't let the D.C. Uniparty scare you into thinking a government shutdown is the end of the world. A so-called shutdown is really just a pause in non-essential federal spending. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. You know, the GOP uh, want to make across the board cuts to vital programs uh, such as the Social Security, uh, such as um, our food safety, 
air quality, all these type of things that's vital to America. Uh, you know, when a person doesn't get that Social Security check on time, that creates a problem for all of America. You know, it is not just federal employees that's going to be affected by these issues. It's the entire community. It is the entire world. Only 15 percent of federal workers live in the D.C. area. The other 85 percent is throughout America. And so America is going to be affected. One thing that's interesting to me is this is not, yes, your union workers are facing this immediate threat of a government shutdown, but there's also increasing calls from prominent Republicans running for president uh, to slash the federal workforce. I want you to listen to this from Vivek Ramaswamy. Here he is. What I think we really need is a true shutdown of the administrative state. And so what I've said is, as U.S. president, I would lay off 75 percent of the federal employee headcount, shut down government agencies from the FBI to the Department of Education. That's how you solve the national debt crisis. That's how you grow the economy. Governor, presidential candidate Ron DeSantis last month said as president, he would, quote, start slitting throats in the federal bureaucracy. What's your response when you hear that? I think it's absurd. It is, you know, it's, 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 it's impossible to think that a person could think that way. Um, you know, for me, though, it's political theater, okay? Uh, America depends on the federal worker. The federal worker depends on America. We work for America. And to have people running for these positions, you know, to make those kind of statements, tell you exactly what kind of person we will be working for. It is, it's unimaginable that we could uh, even elect a person for president that think that way about the federal workers that they represent. Slitting the throats of federal workers? I mean, you know, that's absurd. Uh, uh, he, he said in the federal bureaucracy. He wasn't being literal. Right. But you get the point. Well. I get the point. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, but but even even slit, cutting 90 percent of the agencies, you know, is absurd. I mean, America has to work mm. and it's time for Congress to fund America so that America work for the people. Everett Kelly, thank you for being with us. We'll keep in close touch as the week proceeds. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Former President Trump turning down this week's debate invite instead will be in Michigan to deliver a speech to striking auto workers. How that discussion could impact his campaign. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel confirming that GOP frontrunner Donald Trump won't be attending Wednesday night's debate and that she doesn't know if he'll attend any GOP debate at all. Instead, the former president is expected to be speaking to auto workers in Detroit amid its ongoing strike. Donald Trump will be in Detroit. That was announced over the weekend. President Biden will be there on Tuesday. He'll be there Wednesday. Will he attend any of your primary debates? Well, you know I want him to attend a debate, and he knows that. Everybody knows. I think the other candidates also want him to attend a debate. I hope that before January that he comes to a debate and participates in that process. But everybody's doing their own strategy. So the RNC's role is to create a fair, transparent process, and everyone can play their strategy as candidates as, as how they think they're best going to garner that nomination. Okay. Joining us now at the table to discuss, political reporter for Politico, Emily No, national correspondent for The Washington Post, Philip Bump, and CNN political commentator and political anchor at Spectrum News, Errol Lewis. Guys, welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, congrats on the Buckeyes this weekend. Thanks, great on our part. What? <laughs> we had a lot of All time. morning. <laughs> All morning. You have to. Um, I'll get to the debates in a second, but the auto worker element, the UAW strike, 
the kind of back and forth between Trump, Trump's team, Biden and Biden's team. Um, Emily, Biden deciding to go, physically go on Tuesday, go to the picket lines. I want to be pretty clear about this. There's no real precedent that I could find in terms of a sitting president joining one side of one of these negotiations physically there. What do you think that means? Well, something like the first time in about a century that someone in his position would come out and do that. But he was elected as a champion of the working man uh, with his blue collar background. And he had to choose a side uh, almost to speak on behalf of those working so hard and standing up to those CEOs that would make so much money. But when it comes to him and Donald Trump, we go back fundamentally to a clash of the populace who can speak uh, to those in flyover country who might have been overlooked. And they go about it in very different ways. They have very different messages. They're very different men, different politicians, but they are for the everyday person. Mm -hmm. Given two people at this table from flyover country, we don't call it that, right, Phil? That's okay. <laughs> Just don't call joke. it the Rust Belt. Fully that's, that's, joking. That's what Rust Fully Belt joking. What, to Emily's point, I think, Phil, it's so interesting that they are on the same side of this, that Trump and Biden are going there one day after each other on the same side of it. Sort of. And I think the key distinction here is that Biden is on the side of the institutional power of the labor movement. Donald Trump is on the side of the white working class workers yeah. who are affected. Not all white, obviously, but that's, Explain you know, that, that tends to be his base. The difference being that Joe Biden is establishing and bolstering the power of the union itself, the collective power of this group of people. Mm -hmm. That is the institution. That's the institution that has been so beneficial to Democrats over the course of the past you know, century, right? Donald Trump, on the other hand, is trying to play to the appeal of just the workers themselves. And so Biden's making a statement about who he wants to help, who he wants to bolster, which is this collective group that is organizing on behalf of the workers, as opposed to Trump, is, who's appealing to the workers. And of course, Trump, it's fascinating, you know, this ties into the debate, obviously. He's just, he's playing general election game, right? This is a general election play to go to Michigan and do this and appeal to those same workers who Biden was able to peel off. Any risk in that? In playing, doesn't seem to be. I mean, he's up by like 150 points yeah. in the polls, right? You know, it's a very accurate number. Yeah, right, exactly. That's Errol, but I think Phil makes such a great point here because if you look at the Trump administration over the course of four years, and you say, "All right, what was extremely beneficial to labor that that administration was pursuing? What was really great for unions in terms of the actual structural dynamics of unions?" You're not going to be able to find a lot. No, that's right. And yet, that doesn't matter here. And it looks like they're both fighting for the same thing on the same side of things. Well, that's right. And look, there's a lot at stake here. This is, it really does indicate kind of what the general election strategy would be, assuming a rematch between Trump and Biden. Biden is determined to rebuild that so-called blue wall. He wants to get Wisconsin again. He wants to get Michigan again. He wants to make sure that everybody's clear on where he stands. And he's trying to activate uh, the, the labor movement as a whole as a key part of the Democratic coalition. Trump cannot win unless he pries away some of that base. And what he has done already in some of his statements, we'll hear a lot more of it, I'm sure, this week, is he's trying to separate the, the leadership of the union from the actual membership, just as Phil pointed out. I think he couldn't have picked a worse time. I mean, everything is on the line for these auto workers. And to choose that moment to say, your elected union leadership who was fighting for you to get a 20%, 30% raise, they're selling you out. They're doing something wrong. They're not fighting hard enough against the future, which is electronic, you know, electric vehicles. Um, I, I don't know if this is the right time to do it. I don't know if it's going to work for him, but it does show that he's going to have to really, really try and dig into this stuff because 
you've got a sitting president who's doing something nobody's ever done. He's going to go out and, you know, protest on a strike line. Right. It's amazing. But what's, what makes it even more interesting, to Errol's point, Emily, is the fact that part of the issue that these union workers have is electric vehicles being the future. And the Biden administration has put huge push behind that. You brought it up with the acting labor secretary a few weeks ago. I mean, that just sort of complicates a little bit here, Biden being on the picket line. Oh, absolutely. This 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 movement threatens his green infrastructure agenda. And so he has a contrast to play with. Is he for wage hikes and wants to fight this wage gap? But he also, like you said, wants to advance electric vehicles, put uh, the country on a path to a more sustainable future. And I see also sort of a generational dynamic at play, too. We see that priorities among younger Democratic voters might be uh, combating climate change, fighting this climate crisis. Among older, perhaps more moderate Democrats, it is, again, about the the labor union movement, uh, about making a living. And the way he plays with that in his, in his remarks, what he does over the course of this week is something that should be closely scrutinized. But what I think is so fascinating is this is absolutely a policy issue for Biden, for his administration. Um, and is, it has always been the balance that they've had when it comes to climate and kind of the industrial Midwest. And yet he's being held to account for a policy decision he made that runs against, runs contrary to where union leadership wants, uh, from the UAW perspective, wants things to go. And Trump's entire administration was, if not ambivalent to unions, almost outright anti-union, and they don't get held to account. Like, nothing is tied to the policy side of things, right? Like, Biden has to answer for this. Trump doesn't have to answer for any of his four years. Yeah, I mean, and again, you know, this is the distinction between the workers and the institution itself, right? I mean, one of the things I think is fascinating about the electrical vehicle issue is that Obama and Biden, when, when they were the administration, they were pushing very hard and arguing very hard, look, we need to be the country that's driving on these things. We need to be making the batteries. We need to be making these vehicles and take the lead. And that didn't really happen. There was a lot of blockade. And that let other countries pick up the slack. And right. so now the United States is playing catch up. And now that's being used against Biden and saying, well, all you're going to end up doing is, you know, getting all of our batteries from China. And it's a disadvantage. So we shouldn't have these electric vehicles. I think that sub subplot is fascinating. But yeah, you're exactly right. Donald Trump's position as president and as candidate for president in 2024 is anti-institutional against the labor unions, in part because he recognizes that there is this inherent tension between the leadership of a union and the membership of a union. That's just sort of the nature of unions to a large extent. But also just because he understands this is these are groups that are advantageous for the Democratic Party. And anything that's advantageous for the Democratic Party, Donald Trump doesn't like. Thank you, Emily, Philip, Errol. Appreciate it. So Mexico making a new deal with the United States. It is aimed at easing the migrant crisis that has been overwhelming border cities. We'll tell you what it changes ahead. Well, this morning, the migrant crisis at the southern border is escalating as Mexico and the United States have made a new agreement. This would deport migrants back to their cities at Mexican border cities to their home countries. It's part of an effort to fight the thousands of illegal crossings in recent weeks into the U.S. Mexican officials have also agreed to prevent migrants from using railways to reach that border. And this agreement comes as Texas border towns are especially feeling the weight of the crisis. El Paso's mayor says that city is at a breaking point. Rosa Flores joins us now live from Houston. Morning. This comes after a number of Things were done at the end of last week by the Biden administration on the U.S. side of this. What is Mexico agreeing to do here? You know, Poppy, we can't underscore how important 
what Mexico is doing for the Biden administration. I mean, this is a huge political favor because in essence, what Mexico is saying is that Mexican officials are going to, quote, depressurize their northern Mexican border towns by deporting migrants to their home countries. In essence, they would be rerouting migrants before they get to the U.S. southern border. So they could be, this could be the difference between uh, the U.S. seeing another border surge here pretty soon and not. It's important to underscore, though, that even though these tactics have been used in the past, immigration advocates and human rights organizations have condemned these types of strategies. From Mexico to the riverbanks of Eagle Pass, thousands of migrants have crossed the border, wading across the Rio Grande, crawling under the razor wire, and overwhelming Eagle Pass and other southern Texas cities. We're here abandoned. We're on the border. We're asking for help. This is unacceptable. Please just enforce the laws that are on the books. In an effort to, quote, depressurize northern Mexico border cities, the United States and Mexico have brokered a new agreement. Meeting in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico on Friday, the countries agreed to a 15-action plan, which includes Mexico deporting migrants to their home countries by land and air. U.S. Border Patrol agents will be able to expel migrants to the bridge that connects El Paso to Ciudad Juarez. Mexico has also agreed to carry out negotiations with Venezuela, Brazil, Nicaragua, Colombia and Cuba to determine their willingness to accept citizens deported from the U.S.-Mexico border. The agreement also includes Mexico submitting a daily report of the number of migrants on its train system, establishing checkpoints along the rail route, and conducting interventions on railways and highways, according to Mexican officials. Look, you know, what we need to do is to do this. One, we need to have repercussions at the border. What does that mean? You got to deport people and you got to show those images of people being deported. When was the last time we saw people going the other way instead of just seeing people flow in? On the ground in Eagle Pass, CNN witnessed the reality for migrants. He said, uh, we faint, we pass out, uh, this is crazy, but thank God we are here. Just like Jorge Carrullo of Venezuela and his three-year-old child. According to a federal law enforcement source, Border Patrol agents in the Rio Grande Valley are encountering about a thousand migrants per day. This reality leaves Texas border towns like El Paso at their breaking point with thousands of migrants in custody. You know, we seem to be doing the same thing over and over again. They keep sending us money, we keep trying to find shelter, and we try to make sure people are off the street, make sure our community is safe, make sure they're safe. But at the end of the day, the immigration system has not changed. Now, back to the agreement between the U.S. and Mexico. It's notable that we've learned more from Mexico and Mexican officials about what's in this agreement than from U.S. officials. It was U.S. Customs and Border Protection that attended this meeting on Friday. We've asked U.S. CBP a lot of questions. We haven't heard back, but U.S. CBP did issue a statement yesterday from its acting commissioner saying, in part, quote, the United States and Mexico remain committed to stemming the flow of irregular migration driven by unscrupulous smugglers while maintaining access to lawful pathways. Now, it's important to note as well that Mexico's top diplomat announced on Friday that Mexico's president is wanting to meet with President Joe Biden in November in D.C. And, Poppy, one of the things that they plan to speak about, or at least Mexico wants to talk about, is migration. Yeah. Poppy? Rose Flores, thank you very much for detailing that for us. Appreciate the reporting.
Well, COVID hospitalizations increasing over the past few weeks, and new data finds that hospitalization rate is rising even faster among children. Those details ahead. Also, the mayor of New Orleans declaring a state of emergency as increased levels of salt water in the Mississippi River threaten the drinking water there. How they're trying to reverse that as we look at live pictures of the Superdome this morning. New federal data is revealing a disturbing trend in the recent increase in COVID-19 cases. Hospitalizations are rising faster than average among children. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is here with the details. Um, What's going on? Yeah, so we've been seeing hospitalization levels rise for COVID really since mid-June, and it's up three times for adults. But for kids, they've risen fivefold in that time period. And the vast majority of hospitalizations are among adults, but the American Academy of Pediatrics is calling attention to this trend, and it's particularly alarming in the youngest kids under the age of five. To put it into context, this is off the lowest base for COVID hospitalizations since the pandemic began and we started tracking hospitalizations. But now they are reaching a level that experts are starting to draw some uh, call attention to the hospitalizations. In terms of where in the country they're the worst, right now it's really concentrated in the South. Uh, If you look at this map from the CDC, the yellow is where it's higher and the orange is where it's highest. Florida has the most concentration of elevated hospitalization levels right now. I have a personal interest in this. Yes. I'm taking the kids this afternoon to get flu shots. And I've been thinking about, do I get them the the next COVID vaccine shot and et cetera? I'm going to talk to their doctor about that. Are these hospitalizations in vaccinated and unvaccinated children? Do we know? Well, the vaccination rates among kids are extremely low, particularly yeah. for kids under five. Only 13% of those kids have actually gotten any dose of COVID vaccine. So there's just not a lot of immunity out there, both from vaccination or from prior infection in that age group. For teenagers, it's higher. And so you would expect, we haven't seen the specific data breaking it out, but okay. that most of the hospitalizations are in unvaccinated kids. Okay. Do we have a sense, you talk about the vaccinations, how the administration has handled kind of this latest, uh, I don't want to say wave, this spike. What, what's the terminology I should even use here, but how the administration is operating in this moment. Yeah, we are starting to hear that the White House, of course, is watching this. And today, actually, they've relaunched the home COVID test program. So you can order four free tests per household at covidtest.gov. And experts say this is really important, not just so that you can prevent spread of COVID if you think you might have it yourself to people who might be vulnerable, but also because if you're in a high-risk group, Treatment is actually available if you test positive for COVID, and knowing sooner rather than later helps you actually get those Paxlovid, for example, you have to take pretty soon, right? Yeah, within five days. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Meg. Thanks, Appreciate guys. it. So take this. The live pictures in New Orleans this morning. The mayor there just declaring a state of emergency as the federal government tries to delay or avoid a climate disaster that would threaten the drinking water there. Extreme drought throughout the United, the central United States means water levels in the Mississippi are dropping. Ocean water is then pushing upward and threatening to get into drinking water systems. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is planning to barge 36 million gallons of fresh water daily into water treatment centers, hoping Mother Nature lends a helping hand. I happen to be one who believes in the power of prayer. I'm going to ask for people to pray for rain, uh, but we're going to we're going to do everything we can uh, to to make sure that we're bringing every resource to bear that is reasonably necessary to help us deal with this challenge. Joining us now is CNN Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir. Look, I'm just going to ask the obvious question here. Why is this happening? Why is this? Well, this always happens, actually, because salt water is denser than fresh water. And so you've got the Mississippi coming down into the Gulf of Mexico. Here's what it looks like uh, underwater here. Uh, and 
saltwater is coming in from the ocean. The Mississippi, as it gets lower and weaker, which normally holds all that saltwater back, isn't doing the job. So they have to construct a sand sill to halt this saltwater as it moves up. And you can tell how fast it's moving. It's so defined, the toe of this thing. You can see when it's going to hit Belchase and wind its way up towards New Orleans there. And in here is where all these water treatment plants are that uh, keep folks in Orleans, Plaquemine and Parish alive with drinking water as well. And so they're going to actually put that sill another 20 feet on top of it in this location, try to stop it. But in the meantime, the Armored Corps preparing for this. One way to fight the sill of salt water that's coming in or the wedge is to dilute it. So they have to truck or barge millions of gallons of water to mix it both in the water itself and then in these treatment plants and then thousands, millions of pallets of bottled water just in case things get really bad. And this is because of climate change, Bill, lowering the Absolutely. lowering the Mississippi, that then this happens. And then you have to do these things that are, by the way, not good for the planet to try to make up for it, barging in all exactly. this fresh water. Well, we've been trying to manage the Mississippi for a very long time yeah. and paying the price for that. There's also subsidence as the land sinks beneath as sea levels rise as well. But yeah, if you remember last year, we were headed this very story. These, these steamboat wrecks were showing themselves for the first time in decades as the water went down. It's drought, it's dryness, and this will affect not just water for folks down in, in Mississippi and Louisiana, but food for everybody. Oh. Because the price of a bush, shipping a bushel of soybeans goes up about 300%. That was the case last year, because there's this log jam on the river. This is where the Army Corps is making that sill. But last year, you could see this traffic jam of barge traffic because there was just not enough water for a lot of these big barges to clear. Can you quantify for people big picture? Because you make a great point. We've been trying to figure out and fight and deal with the Mississippi for centuries to some degree. Is there a way to say just how dramatic now is in comparison to then? This could be a record low on the Mississippi, as long as we've been keeping records. We keep breaking these records, temperatures, low ice, all these sorts of things. This is another result of a planet out of balance where water cycles are either too much or not enough these days. And this is the way Humans are adapting. You can see it happening in real time with the Army Corps engineers leading the way. Oh, right. yeah. Thank you. Thanks, you bet. Well, overnight, striking riders in the studio is reaching a tentative deal after 146 days and countless picket lines. There is still, though, no deal in Washington, D.C. to keep the government open. Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez thinks the outcome is inevitable. Listen. I don't want to see a shutdown, but there is no doubt in my mind that the country is headed for a shutdown and everyone should prepare as such. Represent. Representative Gonzalez joins us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Morning, everyone. Top of the hour on a Monday. Glad you're with us. Let's start with five things to know for this Monday, September 25th. The Writers Guild of America says it has reached a tentative agreement with the studios following days of marathon negotiations. If the union agrees to the terms, it would end the nearly five-month-long strike. Well, the government runs out of money to pay its bills in just five days. Great for L.A., not so great for Washington, D.C. The deadline is midnight on September 30th, and there are no signs of compromise between Republican lawmakers and themselves. Also, the pressure growing this morning for Democratic Senator Bob Menendez as more Democratic lawmakers call on him to resign after he was indicted on federal bribery charges. And President Biden will be traveling to Michigan this week to walk the picket lines with the striking members of the United Auto Workers Union. The trip comes after Biden faced political pressure to ramp up his public support for union members. And after 17 years of pure dominance, Megan Rapino hanging up her cleats last night 
was the two-time World Cup champion's 203rd international match and her last as Team USA beat South Africa in a friendly 2-0. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. We have fought so hard on the field, had so much fun, been so successful, uh, doing it underneath all of your guys' cheers. We fought so hard off the field to continue to create. To continue to create more space for ourselves to be who we are, but hopefully in turn more space for you guys to be who you are. All right, here's where we begin. There is a deal, tentative deal, in Hollywood. The writer's strike potentially coming to an end. It's been a lot of days, though. More than 140, nearing a record. Still the actors on strike, but a major, major development overnight. Yeah, that's true. So the Writers Guild has reached this tentative deal with studios. Those are writers celebrating in Los Angeles last night after the agreement was announced. Our guild members are now set to vote and decide whether to accept that deal. In the meantime, Hollywood remains shut down. Actors, of course, are still on strike. No end in sight there. Economists say this strike has cost the U.S. economy more than $5 billion, not only in L.A., but in other TV and film production hubs like Georgia and New York. CNN National Correspondent Camila Bernal is live for us in Los Angeles. Uh, the big question right now is, one, will it get voted through? But two, what's actually in this deal? I, I know details are sparse, but Camila, what do we know right now? That's really what everyone wants to know, Phil. And I've talked to a lot of writers who told me, look, we're confident in the WGA negotiators because they knew exactly what we wanted. And part of that is higher wages and then artificial intelligence. There was a huge focus on that. And it appears that artificial intelligence was actually actually the last sticking point in these negotiations. So the deal hasn't been made public, but a lot of the members saying that they're confident that they're getting what they want. They'll soon be able to see what's in this deal because what happens next here is that they will have leadership votes. That's likely going to happen tomorrow. And after that, that contract will likely be made public. Writers will have the opportunity to ask questions and then eventually will have to vote to ratify this deal. It has not been easy. It's been five months, more or less, of very difficult days for a lot of these writers. And they say they want to go back to work. Uh, but of course, they still have to wait. What officials with the WGA are saying is that they're essentially dotting every I. They're working on the language to then get to that vote. This has had a huge economic impact, and there's still a lot of questions as to what happens next. Because, yes, you may have some talk shows and late night shows come back, back on the air quickly, but because the actors are still on strike, they've been on strike since July, it doesn't mean that productions are going to go back to normal anytime soon. This deal with the writers could pressure or maybe speed up the process with the actors, but we'll have to wait and see what happens, Phil. All right. We will be watching. Camila Bernal, thank you. And joining us now is CNN senior media analyst and senior media reporter for Axios, Sarah Fisher. Uh, Sarah, thanks for joining us. I want to start with, um, is there anything that could get in the way with this getting over the finish line at this point? 
It's not looking likely. I think this is pretty much close to done. The only thing that could get in the way is if there is something in this deal that the writers, once they take a look at it ahead of the vote, don't like. But it seems like most of their big sticking points have been addressed. As Camilla mentioned, wages was the number one thing. Another big thing that I'm curious to see how it's addressed in this deal is the writers' rooms, basically ensuring that the studios hire a certain amount of writers per show. And then, of course, the last thing, protections from artificial intelligence. But I think, Phil, you're going to see this vote ratified, ready to go within the next few days. Sarah, what does that mean, protections against artificial intelligence? Yeah, so the concern amongst writers is that these studios are going to use AI to write scripts. And of course, that's a huge challenge because that would not only put them out of work, but there's also a creative control challenge, too. I mean, IP, basically the intellectual property that you own, is not necessarily protected under law if you're using artificial intelligence. So there's a concern amongst writers that if they use AI to even help them write the scripts, then they're not going to be eligible for things like awards, etc. So all of those things are the types of stuff that you're so, going to find addressed in this deal. So is the belief then that the studios would have agreed to totally not allow AI in at all for the forever? I think no, I think it's going to be something that's a little bit more subjective. Basically, you can experiment with AI, you can leverage it in some certain ways, but ultimately you can't use AI to displace the work of writers, mm -hmm. and you can't use AI in a way that might impact their ability to protect their intellectual property. Again, things that would impact their ability to win awards, etc. So this is a huge deal, but this doesn't address the actors. And my, my understanding is there haven't been actual tangible negotiations on that front for some period of time. Does a deal here unlock the room kind of opening up there? They should be the next domino to fall here. What happens next there? Yes, because the studios have been pretty distracted by the writer's strike before they could even get to the actor strike. So I think now that this is off their plate, they're going to be able to negotiate something with SAG-AFTRA, which is the union that represents the actors. And the other thing to note, Phil, is that they are very eager to get this done. I think the studio had see the WGA as something that they got off their plates, and they want to make sure this gets done before the end of the year. We also now have a template. So when it comes to things like artificial intelligence, now that there is one deal that's been brokered addressing it, you might not be surprised to see similar parameters included in the next deal. Okay. Really interesting. Sarah Fisher, thanks for the reporting. Thank you. Well, this morning, a government shutdown becoming more and more likely as Republican hardliners are holding funding hostage with only five days left to reach a spending deal. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his top allies working through the weekend still does not have support from Republicans demanding significant spending cuts that they cannot force the Democrat-led Senate or the Democrat-led White House to accept. One way out of the crisis for McCarthy would be working with Democrats on a temporary stopgap spending bill. But the most conservative Republicans are threatening that that would cost McCarthy his job. Seeing as Lauren Fox joins us now. Uh, Lauren, I guess the question at this point with five days left is what's worse, a shutdown or working with Democrats if you're the Speaker of the House? Yeah, there's only one man, really, who can answer that question right now, and that is the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. And that is exactly the decision that he likely will have to make at the end of this week. Right now, House Republicans have this gambit where they are going to try to pass one individual appropriation bill at a time. These are year-long bills. They have four of them teed up, potentially to start voting as soon as Tuesday on procedural measures. 
But one thing to keep in mind is none of those bills to fund the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, Agriculture, the Department of State would actually avoid a government shutdown. That is because they are dead on arrival in the Senate and because it just makes up a fraction of the bills that they would need to pass to fund the entire government. That is why House leaders on a private call on Saturday were imploring their members to try to rally behind a short-term spending bill that would fund the government, include border security, and make substantial government cuts. But so far, there are still holdouts to any kind of Republican-negotiated short-term spending bill. That means McCarthy could likely get jammed by the United States Senate. There are conversations happening between Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to try to find a way forward in this Senate, if they can pass a bill out of their chamber, the question for McCarthy will ultimately be, does he put that bill on the floor, negotiated with Democrats in the Senate, or does he not and risk a shutdown? Obviously, it's a question between the gavel and avoiding a government shutdown. Phil? There's a big question at that. Lauren Fox, thank you, as always. Well, Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas joins us now. He's one of the lawmakers against a short-term stopgap bill. He serves on the Appropriations Committee and is a member of the House Problem Solver Caucus. Congressman, I appreciate your time. Uh, just yesterday, I, I was watching your comments yesterday, um, where you seem to say that a shutdown is almost inevitable at this point. If that's the case, who do you think bears the blame here? Everyone. Uh, the, the House, certainly House Republicans uh, are to blame. Senate Democrats are to blame. And the president is to blame. And there's real people that are going to get hurt. Everyone thinks that they can just point the finger at someone else. It's someone else's fault. But ours, it, the, the facts are it's everybody's fault. And, and in the House, that's what I, you know, I'm, I'm a part of. I think step one is passing approach bills. I'd like to see the homeland uh, appropriation bill be the first bill that we take up on Tuesday. I think that has an opportunity of getting passed and then just start piecemealing our way to getting to some sense of uh, solutions here. Can I ask you, you know, the the idea that everyone bears the blame here, I think there's a decade plus of, of uh, evidence of that to some degree. But in this case in particular, uh, there was a deal that was struck to raise a debt limit that set down the baseline for what appropriations committees could do. And, and Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, addressed this yesterday. Take a listen. Speaker McCarthy and the president made a deal. They made a deal earlier this summer. And by the way, it wasn't an easy deal. I mean, just from the transportation side alone, it meant us accepting cuts that Republicans were demanding to programs that we wanted to use to fund more roads and bridges and airports. But we made that deal. And all we're asking is that they live up to that deal. Congressman, when it comes to, look, you voted against that bill on the floor. I'm very aware of that. But there was a deal that was reached by the Speaker and the President, and House Republicans walked away from that deal. So how is the blame equal at this point? You know, when I hear the comments from the uh, Secretary of Transportation, I, I just urge him to focus on the Secretary of Tran on Transportation. I've got a lot of my uh, constituents that complain about the delays in flights and, and other issues, trains, certainly. Uh, th there's no doubt that there's a lot of things to blame right now. Uh, House Republicans need to do their part. Senate, we, we haven't talked about Senate Democrats uh, putting together a CR because they don't have one. Uh, we haven't talked about the president who's been MIA from these conversations. I mean, last week he was, he didn't know if he was talking to the Black Caucus or the Brown Caucus. I mean, it's, it's pretty dysfunctional right now in Washington, but I'm of the mindset, put all that aside. That's all politics. 
Put all that aside, roll up your sleeves, and let's get in a room and let's figure this out. We've got a little bit of runway left. I, I doubt that'll get done in that time. I'm looking at it through the lens. How do we prevent this shutdown from, or, or how do we minimize it from uh, to 10 days instead of 10 weeks? And that starts now, not waiting and keep continuing the, the uh, finger pointing game. I mean, 10 days isn't nothing. I understand what you're saying. 10 days of the shutdown doesn't have no effect. But I guess the question is, You've made clear you're opposed to a short-term stopgap because you think that's just kicking the can down the road. You want to move through individual appropriations bills. There's 12 of them. They would need to pass your chamber when you guys can't even get across procedural hurdles right now and then be reconciled with the Senate and then make it to the White House. Uh, I'm sorry, like in what world is that anything less than 10 weeks based on how Congress operates? That's it. You know, if you give Congress more time, all they're going to do is take every every hour and not accomplish anything. You'd be amazed. You know, uh, I, I learned a long time ago how do you eat a, a, an elephant one bite at a time, lock everyone in the room. The pressure is certainly up. Everyone's playing the blame game. It's always somebody else's fault. But I think now's crunch time because there are real people. They're going to be hurt. You know, people in the military, certainly people in DHS along the border. The border crisis right now is absolutely out of control. I mean, it, it, in, in my district, you know, you've got you've got facilities that are at 400 percent capacity. You've got in El Paso, uh, we've got over 2000 people coming over a day. It, it, it's all fun and games looking at it at a bar going, oh, that's in Texas. But very soon, that will be in your city. You're seeing it in New York. You're certainly going to see it in California here soon. It's just this border crisis is something real. I'd like for us to get back to handling the real issues of America. Uh, I want to talk to you about the border, particularly your district, in a minute. But I think that raises a good point because the pressure, utilizing pressure for leverage, and I hear you on kicking the can down the road and giving lawmakers more time. I've covered the place long enough to, to understand what you're saying there. But Border security, DHS, uh, CBP, like they will be affected by a shutdown. And so you, you think that it's worthwhile to use that as leverage uh, and to some degree drop border security, drop national security in an effort to force people to reach solutions on 12 spending bills of which none of which have passed both chambers at this point. I don't think anyone should leverage anyone. I think politicians should do their job. I think the House should do its job. I think the Senate should do its job. And I think the president should do its jo- his, his job. We should all work together. It may not be exactly what we all want, but that's why the American public you know, elected us in, in these different chambers. And right now you see none of that. You see it's just always somebody else's fault. And when, we, when, when there is a shutdown, there are real people that are going to be hurt. And once again, no one's really talking about what happens after that. And that's what I'm really focused on is how do we get to some sense of real, real things, not, you know, things that the, the House passes that the Senate has no chance of picking up or the Senate passes and the House has no chance of passing up. What are some real things that can ultimately get us to a point where if there is a government shutdown, we can restart the government and get things going again? I want to ask about the border. Your district includes a long stretch of border uh, along the Rio Grande, includes Eagle Pass, uh, I believe, where there's currently thousands of migrants uh, crossing the river uh, to declare asylum. You're going to host uh, members of Congress there. What do you want to show them? What tangibly do you think can be done in the near term? You know, this is really many communities along the border feel abandoned. I mean, you've, you've heard from uh, Mayor Salinas of Eagle Pass, who is a Democrat, by the way. Many of us feel abandoned. So today is, is, is in large part bringing members of Congress to the border and saying you're not abandoned and we are going to continue to hear you out and we are going to continue to advocate. That's one. The other one, the other piece to it, too, is how do we find real solutions? I get it. There's a lot of 
finger pointing. It's easy to blame President Biden's failed immigration policies. But how do we find real solutions? If we're going to rely on Mexico, there was just this deal. If we're going to rely on Mexico to handle our immigration system, I'm very concerned with that because they're, they've failed in every aspect. You just look at the, the fentanyl crisis. Me Mexico has not helped us in this in this area. So we can't allow, allow on other countries to handle our national security. You know, you mentioned the, the agreement with Mexico. That was something the administration was working on over the weekend. They also moved forward on temporary protected status, expanding it for Venezuelans uh, to try and give them work permits uh, as they work to process asylum claims. What's your message in terms of the administration? I think everybody agrees, both parties, that the immigration system is broken. There, there's no it's the only thing I think everybody agrees on in Washington. But if you had a message as a border state lawmaker uh, or border district lawmaker, what is it to the president? You know, I met with Secretary Mayorkas, and it's a similar message that I gave to him late last week. You know, when you grant 500,000 uh, Venezuelans who came over illegally uh, asylum, what you're doing is you're undermining legal immigration. I've got a bill. It's called the Higher Act. It's 30 members of Congress, 10 Republicans, 20 or 10 Democrats, 20 Republicans that focuses on legal immigration through work visas. And anytime you're going to grant people that are, have come over illegally work visas, all you're doing is undermining the legal aspect. Imagine if you're from India and you're a doctor and you're trying to come here to work, but but someone from Venezuela is, is cutting the line. Imagine you're a nurse from the Philippines and you're coming to the United States trying to do it the right way, but someone from Cuba is cutting the line. These are the type of things that I think we need to set aside and go, how do we fix this system long-term? Step one, you know, my, my good friend Henry Cuellar is, is onto something. You have to enforce the laws that are on the books through repatriation flights. How do we just decompress and get our cities back under control? But long-term, Congress has to lead in a bipartisan manner that is real solutions. I think that starts through legal pathways like work visas. Um, I, I don't have any time left, but I do want to ask you next week at this time, is Speaker McCarthy still at the gavel? Uh, I, I don't see. I mean, who else? Right. If not McCarthy, who? Good point. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. So Ron DeSantis is slamming Donald Trump's abortion stance after the former president called Florida's six week ban a, quote, terrible mistake. We're going to step back and take a look at Trump's evolution on this issue ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, welcome back. Former President Trump's abortion stands front and center on the campaign trail after he called Florida's six-week ban a, quote, terrible mistake. Now Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is hitting back. Listen to this. Protecting unborn babies that have detectable heartbeats is not terrible. Uh, it's noble. It's just. And it should be something that anyone says that they're pro-life would embrace. I don't see how you could claim to have been at one time pro-life and then turn around and say that it's terrible that a state would enact protections for life. So let's take a look at this, because Trump's position on abortion has evolved over the last 25 years. And that evolution is something his Republican rivals have been quick to attack. Take a look at how that position has changed over his decades in public life. I'm I'm very pro-choice. I hate the concept of abortion. I hate it. I hate everything it stands for. I cringe when I listen to people debating the subject. 
but you still, I just believe in choice. But I'm pro-life. You're pro-life, but you do think that there should be exceptions for rape and incest. Yes, uh, and life, you know, the health of the mother, the death. Do you believe in punishment for abortion, yes or no, as a principle? Uh, the answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. We got it back to the States. Uh, we did the Roe v. Wade thing, which have been, they've been trying to get it done for 50 years. I got it done. I believe in the three exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. I believe in that. Without the exceptions, it is very difficult to win elections. Going to would you sign federal legislation there. that would ban abortion at 15 weeks? No, no, let me just tell you what I do. I'm going to come together with all groups and we're going to have something that's acceptable. I mean, DeSantis is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think I, that I goes think too what far? he did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. As you can see, it is quite an evolution. With us at the table, the co-author of Politico's New York Playbook, Emily No, Washington Post national correspondent Philip Bump, and Semaphore politics reporter Shelby Talcott. Um, yes, people change, Shelby. But he's changing back and forth kind of right now because he's criticizing some of the most strict bans that, by the way, Dobbs has allowed to happen, while also saying, but I'm the one who got all these conservative justices on the court and I'm therefore responsible for getting Roe overturned. He's sort of trying to play both sides here. Um, and so in a way, he is kind of almost, in my opinion, moving over to the general election early. And he's trying to figure out ways to get some of those more moderate, socially moderate voters on board, while also reminding the ultra-conservative religious voters, well, last time around, I did X, Y, Z for you guys, so you should still be with me, even though I'm saying something different this time around. And that has really frustrated the anti-abortion activists, as we've talked about here before. The thing is, it hasn't, that frustration hasn't really translated into any changes in support for Trump in a primary election. Mm -hmm. uh, dig in on the primary in a second. But Emily, the idea of I'm, I'm triangulating back for the general election right now when you got three Supreme Court justices where your threshold was literally opposition to Roe versus Wade, and therefore that is exactly what they did, which has allowed everything on the state level. Like, how do you get to do that? Because you're Donald Trump, and That's he isn't held to account answer, by Republicans. But it's right, and I <laughs> he isn't held to account by Republicans by his party in the way that he should be. Shelby is right that he's playing both sides. He shouldn't be permitted to. He shouldn't. He should care what Ron DeSantis, as his primary opponent, says. Uh, he should have his words used against him. He shouldn't be able to appoint justices to the Supreme Court that hurt Dobbs, that hurt Roe. He shouldn't be able to go on and call a six-week ban in Florida a terrible mistake. But he can say whatever he wants. He says what's politically expedient. And no one cares. He is not, no one else is competitive at this stage in the Republican primary um, as Donald Trump, who's 40 points over Ron DeSantis. So good for Ron DeSantis for trying to stick up for his state for his policies, but Trump says what he wants. Isn't the reality that it doesn't really matter what Trump says on this right now because he got the court so dramatically changed that he got this ruling that is going to be here? Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, his shtick in politics has always been 
to say the thing that he thinks people want to hear and then do whatever he can to deliver for his base. That was him delivering for his base, getting those three justices appointed, having Roe be overturned. He can just point and to that. Not just right? that, the guns decision, the oh, sure, yes. state EPA. I mean, all of these things. A- absolutely, absolutely. I'm so glad in that in that segment, that you, the, the, yeah. those clips you just showed, you showed that point in 2015 when he's asked if there should be a punishment for the women because you can see him. He's never thought about it. You can see him. He's like, yes, I think there has to be a punishment for and he's just making it up on the fly because that's what he does. He, he, he's not paid any attention to this issue except that he knows what's popular. And what he knows right now is he's seen all these election results. He knows that his party's hard position on abortion is not popular. Mm-hmm. Again, he's running in the general already because he's basically locked up the primary. And so this is what he's doing. This is the message he's putting forward. Oh, these guys are too far to the right trying to position, position himself as a moderate and knowing that the right will still be there on election day. Triangulating in real time. Yeah, and I have a, a decent idea that Democratic ad makers probably not going to let him get away with yeah, that to some degree. But on the, in the primary side, you know, take a listen to what Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis have been saying. You saw him walking away from our commitment to the sanctity of human life. I'm pro-life. People that know me know I'll always stand for the unborn. I think the foreign president is wrong on the issue. Uh, he was a pro-life president. We need a pro-life president in the future. For him to then attack people like Iowa, South Carolina, Florida, all these other states, uh, I thought was a big mistake. But look, I mean, I think he's... Um, He's uh, taking positions that uh, I think are different from what he took in 2015 when he first came onto the scene. Senator Tim Scott was in there as well. Iowa is the state that everyone's been looking to for some type of sign that this is having an impact. Is it? Not so far. And it was really interesting. I had a conversation with um, Bob Vanderplatz, who's a very prominent Iowa evangelical, uh, sort of like the leader of one of the leaders of the movements out there. And his point to me was if... Trump is successful in Iowa, as we have seen every indication is that so far, I mean, it's still early, but he's he could be. Um, It will say more about the evangelical voter base there by basically his argument was it'll say that they are willing to vote for a personality over their cause. And so this is not just, you know, an issue for what's going to happen in 2024. But it's also, I think, kind of going to be a basis of how um, influential the evangelical, social conservative base, uh, anti-abortion movement is going forward. Let's just, before we go, look at this new polling out. There's a bunch. There's ABC, Washington Post. But I want to hone in on the NBC poll, Biden's overall approval rating, and then how he's doing on the economy up. 56% disapprove, only 41% approve. And on the economy, it's really bad. Let's pull that up next. I believe it's 23%, if I've got that right, approval on the economy. This is a little different look, but the economy is worse, 58%. Philip, how do you fight this when they're running on Bidenomics? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if they continue to run on Bidenomics moving forward. I think they might. That's interesting. You think they may. Well, I just don't know. I mean, they they put a big push on like, oh, let's talk about Bidenomics. I don't know if, you know, I think they will still definitely focus on the economy and the fact that the economy is more robust than people might have anticipated. I don't know if they'll use that phrase. Uh, But, you know, I mean, I think that a, a, a lot of Democrats are thinking that what they need to do is run on democracy as opposed to Donald Trump. We saw this ad that came out from Donald Trump or from Joe Biden last week. Uh, President Biden, I should say, uh, that focused on his visit to Ukraine and really had a subtext about, like, I'm standing up against the autocrats. I think that's the push they're going to make. 2020, he got elected president not because he was so popular, because Donald Trump was so unpopular. That's definitely, 
part of what they're hoping will happen again in 2024, should that be the matchup. And he's giving a speech on democracy soon, so we'll see if that pivot happens. Emily, Phil, Shelby, thanks, guys, as always. Well, this just into CNN. Embattled Senator Bob Menendez is set to speak later today at 11.30 a.m. from a community college in New Jersey. There have been growing calls for him to resign after he was indicted on bribery charges. Those calls even coming from his own party within his state. Stay with us. Well, this just into CNN. Embattled Senator Bob Menendez is set to speak later today at 11.30 a.m. from a community college in New Jersey. Now, there have been growing calls for him to resign after he was indicted on bribery charges. Those calls even coming from within his own party. I do believe that it is in the best interests uh, for Senator Menendez to resign in this moment. As you mentioned, consistency matters. It shouldn't matter whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. This is a very serious charge. There's no question about it. In terms of resignation, that's a decision to be made by Senator Menendez and the people of New Jersey. Well, these are serious and shocking charges, uh, bribery, corruption. Um, I've never seen anything like this. I think uh, Senator Menendez is going to have to think long and hard about the cloud uh, that's going to hang over his service in the United States Senate. Now, Menendez denies taking thousands of dollars in bribes, including cash, gold and lavish gifts. You see some of them there on the screen in exchange for using his office to aid Egypt's government. CNN's Kara Scanal joins us now. Look, Kara, the big question, and I think we kind of have a sense of the answer, what's he going to say at this public first public appearance today? Right. I mean, that is the thing. This is the first time he's going to step before the camera since he was indicted on Friday. And on Friday, he did come out twice with two defiant statements saying, I am not going anywhere. So I think we'll probably hear more of the same. He is up for re-election, so we'd be looking to see what he says about his political plans. But, you know, this is the second time in a decade that Menendez has been indicted on corruption charges. And that last time he went to trial, he never resigned from his seat. He was ultimately, it was interesting, there was a mistrial. The judge acquitted him on some charges. And then the Justice Department said they were not going to retry him on the remaining charges in that case. Now, according to this indictment, this alleged scheme began just weeks after that case ended. So it's a real, I mean, it's just kind of a real interesting decade for Menendez here and what the prosecutors are alleging. But, you know, these are serious charges. He is due in court on Wednesday by a court summons him, his wife, and three other co-defendants to face these charges. And we'll be, that will be then the next time we may see him speak about this. One of the things that I think is interesting about this and important is that it's very different than the last corruption trial. There are three really serious charges in here. He could face up to 20 years in prison. I'm not saying the last ones weren't serious, but this is, I mean, partially involves sensitive U.S. government information. Can you explain to people sort of the three prongs? Right. I mean, so there are three criminal counts here. <clears throat> and what prosecutors say is that Menendez had abused his position as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he had a very important role about whether Egypt could get military aid and financing, something that they were needing. And so according to this indictment, Menendez had sent sensitive information to an intermediary that got to the Egyptian government. He held meetings with Egyptian military officials in his office without his staff. And, you know, one of the allegations is that he ghost wrote a letter for Egypt to send to other U.S. senators to try to convince them to lift a hold on $300 million in aid to Egypt. And that, those are some of the alleged acts that the prosecutors say he took as part of this scheme. And they also say he tried to interfere with two different criminal investigations mm -hmm 
facing one of these businessmen who was also indicted alongside him and then associates of another businessman in this scheme um, saying that he was trying to help them. So interfering in Justice Department in New Jersey Attorney General's office investigations. Well, we see him at the it's a federal court, right? So we'll see him on Wednesday. I mean, I'll see him on Wednesday. Him. There won't be f- cameras in yeah. the courtroom, but we will see him walk into court and we'll see him walk out because there's not likely to be yeah. an issue of a detention here. So it's very possible we'll see him address the cameras. Then. You'll be there. Thank you, Kara. This morning, the U.S. ambassador to Canada revealing what led Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to blame the Indian government for the assassination of a Sikh activist on Canadian soil. David Cohn told CTV the information came through Five Eyes, which, of course, is the intelligence sharing pact between the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Cohen says the U.S. has expressed their concern to India and asked that the government cooperate with Canada's ongoing investigation. The United States um, takes very seriously these allegations. Um, And, you know, if they prove to be true, um, it is a potentially very serious breach of the rules-based international order in which we like to function. This is something we're treating, we take very seriously, and we think it's very important to get to the bottom of it. We should know India has denied the claims, calling them absurd, absurd and motivated. Well, the auto workers union expanding its strike with huge economic consequences at stake. What car owners and buyers might see just ahead. Usher is your halftime performer for Super Bowl 58. (laughs) So the strike is not over. In fact, it's expanding the United Auto Workers Union, making that targeted strike larger against GM and Solantis just a week after their contract expired. The union president, Sean Fain, says those two companies are not bringing, quote, a serious offer to workers, though he does note that Ford is, but with no resolution likely in the short term. What are the effects on car owners, prospective car buyers, average Americans? Vanessa Yurkiewicz joining us now. I know you're headed back to Detroit very shortly. But where do things stand now? Because I thought that was surprising to read. They think Ford is coming to the table in a serious way. The other two, no. Yes, certainly. And just in the first week of the strike, we saw an economic impact of about $1.8 billion. Those were just the three plants that were on strike across all three automakers. You had losses of wages totaling $250 million. You had losses to uh, consumers and car dealerships of $470 billion. So that was just before these additional 38 targeted strikes across all of GM and Stellantis's parts and distribution centers. Ford, as you mentioned, not on that list because Sean Fain said that he felt like there was enough negotiating, there was a good deal so far, or good offer so far from Ford, enough progress was made on their front. But what we need to look out for going forward here is what is the expanded impact on consumers? Because essentially when you take out Uh, parts and distribution across two big automakers, that has a ripple effect down to dealerships. Dealerships provide service to everyday Americans who want to go in and get their cars fixed. And when you don't have those parts coming into those dealerships, they can't do repairs. And that's actually a huge part of their income is repairs for everyday Americans. So they may have to turn people away. And then in turn, they will turn up the temperature on GM and Stellantis to potentially come to a deal faster or negotiate a little bit better with the union because eventually this is going to hurt the dealership's bottom line. 
the negotiations themselves, I'm kind of fascinated by the way Ford has broken off a little bit yeah. in terms of the talks, because historically, what the union would do is kind of pick one representative right. of the big three, work with them, and then it would kind of spread after a deal was reached. Is that what's happening here? Because they're still punishing the other two in terms of these uh, closures right now. It's not what's happening because from the very beginning, the union said that they were going after all three. They were not picking a target. It's just right now Ford seems to be the company out of the big three that is putting the best offer on the table. However, despite offering cost of living increases, transitioning temporary workers to full-time workers, providing job security in their latest offer, both sides, the union and Ford, say they are there's a huge gap on the economic issues. So you're talking about wages. You're talking about potentially bringing back pensions uh, that the workers gave up in 2009 and retiree benefits. There's still a large gap there. One thing to note, though, is Ford made a deal with Unifor, which is the Canadian union. And in that deal, we did see that Ford brought back pensions. So it'll be interesting to see if the UAW is looking at that Canadian deal and saying, well, wait a minute, you brought back pensions for our Canadian counterparts. Let's see what we can do at the table here in the U.S. That's a great point. Look forward to having you on. Thanks. I'll see you tomorrow from yeah, Detroit. Detroit. Thank you, Vanessa. <laughs> well, new this morning, the wife of actor Bruce Willis is speaking out about his condition. In an interview with NBC, Emma Hemming Willis discussed how the family was coping in the face of Willis's frontotemporal dementia. You know, what I'm learning is that dementia is hard. It's hard on the person diagnosed. It's also hard on the family. Um, And that is no different for Bruce or myself or our girls. And when they say that this is a family disease, it really is. Does he know what's going on? Is that something that he is aware of? Hard to know. It's hard to know. Honestly, he is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, Love, patience resilience so much. Now, Willis and his family went public with his diagnosis this past February. Frontotemporal dementia is a progressive condition that can affect a person's communication and change their personality. Just, well, for the, I was, sorry, I was just no, so struck listening to, to his wife. Yeah. yeah. Um, thinking the best for their entire family. Well, for the first time, a NASA spacecraft has brought samples from an asteroid back to Earth. This mission has been seven years in the making. What we can learn from these samples, we're going to break it down next. Let's just end to CNN. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says that American Abrams tanks have arrived in Ukraine and are, quote, getting prepared to reinforce our brigade. Zelensky writing on Telegram that he is, quote, grateful to our allies for fulfilling the agreements. We're looking forward for our new contracts and expanding the geography of supply. We'll keep a close eye on that. Meantime, a major milestone for NASA. Touchdown. I repeat, EDL. FRC has touchdown. Space Agency finally has its hands on an asteroid sample seven years after launching to space. A NASA spacecraft delivered a capsule containing the sample early on Sunday morning. And we are told that that capsule contains dust and rocks from the asteroid. Scientists will now spend years studying the rare cosmic gift, hoping to understand the details about the origins of the solar system. With us at the table, astrophysicist Jana Levin. She's also a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University and the author of the book, Black Hole Survival Guide. Good morning. Morning. I geeked out reading a lot on this this morning. It's (laughs) It's super interesting. Phil just wants to say the actual name. (laughs) 
Osiris Rex. Yes, yeah. whatever that Osiris is. Osiris Rex. <laughs> it's but a it, very long acronym. But it's amazing <laughs> what it was able to do. It is incredible because the material on this asteroid, we think, is much more similar to how the solar system was when it first formed four and a half billion years ago. So it actually came from an asteroid belt that's between Mars and Jupiter. And we know we have this image of asteroid belts as being very dense and you can't navigate through, but we've sent spacecraft through. It's not that bad, but it is dense enough that there are collisions and this asteroid was cast out and is now in a near Earth uh, orbit around the sun. So we were able to get to it easily, but it has this kind of ancient rock mm. and material. What's the first thing, so this, they have this in hand. Yeah. Probably not literally in your hands, but in some yeah. <laughs> What are they doing right now? Like, this is a years-long so, process, I presume. Yes. What are they first trying to find out? So the first thing they've done is they've moved it to a green room locally in Utah where they collected it. I should say the spacecraft was about a third of the way to the moon when it sent it to Earth, this capsule, and then it jettisoned away. So the capsule came on its own, and it was recovered, and it's 120 pounds. So it was carried, first helicoptered, and then put on a cart, literally, and then moved into um, the Johnson Space Center at, in Houston, where it's going to be divvied up a little bit among scientists and studied to see if there are these kind of precious amino acids that we think might have launched life here on Earth. So it's unclear if Earth had what it takes to initiate life on its own without asteroids bringing material to initiate the entire process. I, this might sound like a dumb question. How did it get the rocks in the dirt? Like you've got this yeah. asteroid and you've got this yeah. spacecraft. Does it land, right. scoop them up, take off? Yeah, it's a great question because it's really quite small. It's only a yeah. few hundred meters across and it's really more of a kind of collection of debris that's loosely stuck together, a little bit of gravity. And so what the spacecraft did is it dropped down really fast and it stuck down a little <laughs> probe to kind of kick up dust purposefully, gather some material and pop off again. Hmm. Um, and uh, it didn't stay. <laughs> it, was, it was a flyby. It was a drop, a punch, and then it left. And, um, and so it happened to get enough material. And it, the whole thing turned out to be rockier than we expected, looser than we expected. Mm. It really penetrated right into the soil as though there wasn't any solid surface. So even that part, which happened in, in 2020, was mm -hmm. quite amazing. Yeah. It's remarkable. Um, how quickly do you think people will have a sense of if it has the answers in yeah. terms of the amino acids? It's just a great question. We do have theories, uh, techniques to study um, the amino acids to see if water's sealed inside. But there are certainly probably some tests and things we haven't even thought of. When we look at the Apollo mission bringing back moon rocks, we did not know there was water trapped in these rocks until 40 years later. There were uh, scientists who hadn't been born when the collections were first made, who invented techniques to study them in the labs. This is very much, if you hear the NASA scientists talk about it, they're saying in the future, there are scientists not yet born who will study these rocks. And it goes on now to do this again at another yes. asteroid, right? Yes, it's on its way to another asteroid and it uh, won't be there until 2029. Hey, we'll be watching, Jenna. We'll be Thank watching. you so Thank much. You Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining us on this Monday. Have a great day. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. CNN News Central is next. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.